0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
1: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
4: Rich, we've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about
3: time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east?
4: Like Queens?
3: Singapore. Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be yeah. my family?
4: I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, Nick changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. We'll take a bag and get you checked into perspective. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich?
1: We're comfortable. That is exactly
4: what a super rich
3: person would say. <laughs>
1: Last August, crazy rich Asians took the box office by storm, raking in over $170 million in the U.S. alone. The film was one of the several big blockbusters to premiere last summer, featuring all Asian casts and or Asian leads. The phenomenon was dubbed hashtag Asian August and sparked worldwide excitement about a turning point for positive representation in Hollywood. A number of films starring Asian casts have since graced the silver screen, but has the momentum of Asian in August continued in the way fans and critics had hoped. Later in the show, last month's historic high temperatures aren't the only thing bringing the heat in French wine-growing country. Bordeaux winemakers are now cleared to grow warm climate grapes beginning next year. And late-night carb lovers on Martha's Vineyard and in Providence are in luck. Two new fresh donut windows are open for business during nighttime hours. Our food and wine contributors return to give us the scoop on the late summer culinary trends you'll want to know. But first, joining me in the studio, Elena Kreef, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian-American visual history and photography, film, and popular culture. Hello, Elena.
5: Hi, Callie. Wonderful to be back.
1: And I'm so glad to have you back. Jenny Korn, Fellow and Founding Coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Callie. Thank you for having me back. So thrilled to have you back. And for the first time, Morella <laughs> Gayla, who is working as a reporting intern this summer for the Boston Globe. She also has bylines with Vice, Curbed, and The Marshall Project. Welcome, Morella. Thank you so much. Well, the question on the table is representation and whether crazy rich Asians from last year kicked the door open, as one of the articles said, and kept it open for a lot more and deeper and broader representation. So let's just take kind of a survey from all of you, and then we'll go back and dive into specifics. Elena.
5: Well, if you said, have we come a long way, baby, since Asian August 2018, I would say, you know what, we're just getting started, and it's been a great year. Okay.
1: What do you say, Jenny?
0: I say that I'm grateful that When Crazy Rich Asians came out, it wasn't just a blip because I was actually concerned that it would be one movie and then we wouldn't see any more movies that were led by Asian casts. What we have seen is that more Asians are showing up as lead characters, lead male characters, which is something I want to talk about. And I would say that Crazy Rich Asians and the movies right now, we're in an era of reassuring, familiarizing Um, Asian-American movies, and I hope that that era will lead us into more politicized, political era around Asian-Americans. All right. Morella, what do you say?
4: Yeah, I think I'm on a similar page. I think in terms of sheer quantity, it's hard to deny that Crazy Rich Asians has kicked the door open. I do think there's going to be room for more variety in terms of the types of stories that we see, the types of projects, just in terms of medium and in terms of approach. But it's hard to deny the momentum that Crazy Rotations kicked off.
1: Well, there's all kinds of stuff out there, including one of the films getting a lot of attention, which is The Farewell, also starring Aquafina, who was a breakout star. She wasn't the star, per se, of Crazy Rich Asians, but she was certainly the breakout star in that film as well. Completely different mood, tone, film. She's not being her funny self. It's a different story. So I'm gonna first play a clip from it, and this is from the trailer.
4: What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. when nan is
3: dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her.
1: Why is that better? Chinese people have a saying. When people get cancer, they die. So, Aquafina is playing an Asian-American character, a daughter who is tasked with keeping a secret, the family secret, not informing the grandmother that she's about to die. We're not going to give any spoilers here, but... I just wanted to talk about her role and what it means in terms of this conversation about representation. I mean, you all were saying, good, good start. We want to see a little something different. This seems deeper. I Mm -hmm. was talking
0: about how this era seems to be one that is focusing on Asian-American movies that familiarize non-Asian-Americans with what Asian-American community might be. And so here we have a story about—it's a relatable story. It's a universal story about uh, families and about families dealing with death. The Asian wrinkle, so to say, is that the decision not to— inform the grandmother about her impending death and there has been a reviewer that was critiquing that said that the premise was preposterous Mm. that kind of dismissal really misses the point of looking at this movie as an Asian an Asian American film there are values about culture that are being broadcast through this movie in terms of prioritizing collectivists the collectivism of the family. What would be best for the family versus what would be considered selfish? To me, as a Thai American who actually has dealt with this kind of, do we tell the kids or do we not, for my parents, about different tragedies in our own family, I totally understand why the decision was made not to tell the grandmother at first. And my question would be, if that is part of informing the masses what Asian and Asian-American values might be, why in the end is there almost always a return to a critique of those values? And the critique is always stemming from an American perspective Mm. that once again puts the priority back on the individual instead of the
1: collective. And so I question Mm. that. I would say that it would be an American white perspective because the pushback, Morella, on the writer that said, well, this is absurd, was huge, Um, not just from a lot of Asian-Americans, but from other people saying, how dare you know anything about what's culturally correct in this film, which, by the way, was written by an (laughs) Asian-American, Lulu Wong. Um, Morella, you want to speak to that? Uh,
4: Yeah, sure. I also, to go off of what Jenny was saying about... uh, This early wave of Asian American blockbuster films familiarizing uh, non Asian American people with what Asian American families are like. I think that poses an interesting challenge for filmmakers and actors about whether you need to sort of pause in these movies and explain what's going on. And I think this movie handled that pressure really deftly like in that clip that you played where it seems like it's about to be this sort of orientalist moment where the mother says you know in china we have this saying and it kind of subverts our expectations by turning it into more of a punchline. so i think those moments were really clever and i think that really felt like not just a reflection of what's going on in the movie but what space the movie is entering Uh, so i was really appreciative of that
5: elena well, what this film does superbly well, and Wayne Wang started this with Joy Luck Club in 92, was that this is a film that doesn't make apologies about showing us two different cultures. I love that this film, like Crazy Rich Asians, starts in New York and then travels. It goes east. I love films that are straddling both Asia and Asian-American cultures and giving us a glimpse without explanation about this is what bicultural world looks like for immigrant families who have family on both sides.
1: The other point about The Farewell is that it's a completely different different story whether you agree with the central premise or not it's a little bit more serious it takes you different places in the conversation. I agree with you, Jenny, that it it feels like, okay, let's let everybody get familiar with this is what it looks like, and we're all normal, and we're at a wedding, and isn't this interesting? Uh, (laughs) But, you know, there's something to be said for that, people feeling, oh, I can enter into this space and and figure out what's going on, while at the same time, as Elena said, get a taste of a a bicultural situation that's really made plain in it, which I particularly appreciate it, you know. So that was just me. Speaking of Wayne Wang, he now has a film that's coming out. And if people don't know his name, Elena mentioned him, Joy Luck Club. He also did Eat a Bowl of Tea. Chan is Missing. He's such an iconic filmmaker. And now he's doing a film that has themes that sound very much like The Farewell. And I wondered if we are now about to enter into a kind of copycat thing. Though, you know, this guy is... Phenomenal. We're not taking anything away from him. But the story is very much about a family thing and a food thing. Right. Which I think
0: goes back to the early era. This is, I'm considering this to be um, a time where Asian American stories that are going to be told do continue to focus on what makes us like other families or other communities. And I completely agree with you. When I read the summary for Coming Home Again, it seems to me it's the same similar themes, rather, about death in a family, but instead of being uh, Chinese-American, it's Korean-American. Similarly to that, when Yesterday came out, there was another movie that quickly followed with another South Asian lead that also was inspired by music. Instead of The Beatles, it was Bruce Springsteen. So I do agree with you, Callie, that there is the commercial side where producers and the cinemas and the people that are behind funding these movies are seeing, well, if one movie does well we can switch it out, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and, like, yeah. build on it um, yes. but from Chinese to Korean and then from Beatles music to Bruce Springsteen.
1: I would imagine that a Wayne Wang film is going to do well just because, you know, this guy, yeah. and, you know, knows what he's doing and people would be tempted to go see it. Can I say something yes. about Wayne
5: Wang? Because yes. he is one of the, the great senior Asian-American film directors who gets to take on big-budget Hollywood feature films. Wayne Wang knows Asian-American literature. He knows the canon. He knows the writer. He was selected to direct Amy Tan's bestseller, Joy Luck Club, back in the 90s. He reads Cheng Lee's short stories that he's working on with this next film. When we're talking about what are the full range of Asian Asian-American stories that are available, we have barely scratched mm-hmm. the surface. I am dreaming of the time and the director that's going to take on Maxine Hong Kingston's yes. Woman Warrior. <laughs> like, please bring that on. I'm excited about the new live-action Mulan, but I want to see the original Woman Warrior. There are so many brilliant and amazing male and female Asian American writers whose works of fiction, nonfiction, could be tapped into as sort of endless film stories. And Wayne Wayne is sort of, he's leading the way because he understands that that's where you find the great stories. You find it in this beautiful body of literature.
1: Min Jin Lee's piece, by the way, Pachinko, is being made now by Apple. And that is definitely a direct result of Crazy Rich Asians' wave. And by the way, Lulu Wong, she had to do a lot of searching to find a space for her film. But now there appears to be, A little bit more opening for something that's not a comedy or one of the best-selling romantic comedies of all time, which was Crazy Rich Asians, in case people don't know that. All right, let's talk about something that you brought up, Morella, which is interesting. And you were inspired by the Netflix movie Always Be My Maybe, which was produced, written by and starring Ali Wong and Randall Park. And people may know Randall Park from Fresh Off the Boat. Let's listen to a clip and then I want to get into it. You don't want to wonder what if. Tell her how you feel, son. I have some news. So do I.
0: It's big.
3: Mine's big, too. Okay, look, um...
0: Okay, I want to go first. I met someone.
3: Wow,
1: <laughs> that's, that's so great.
4: We had the most insane, freaky-ass sex. I can't even talk
1: about it, otherwise... Yeah, let's might stop talking it. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just... It's a very cute, is the, is mm, yeah, the word that is. I would use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of thing that if it's on, I will look at it again. Uh, You know, it's not uh, very heavy, but at the same time, I think it's making a statement of some sort. But, Morella, what I was interested in in your piece is you asked, do I have to feel like everything in this movie is representational? (laughs) Um, Talk about it a bit.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I similarly thought it was a really cute movie. And I think an interesting effect of these movies coming out is that there's always an online conversation about, you know, how does this represent me? How do I see myself in this movie? And I think that's really exciting. And I also think that there's something that gets lost when uh, the conversation around the movie is oriented by how much you see yourself in it. And so I think for me, a lot of what I enjoyed about Always You, I May be was the novelty of seeing things that felt like artifacts of my own real life. Uh, But I also felt like unsatisfied by the movie. And I thought, as far as movies go, it was just okay. And there was some guilt in there too, because I want to support Asian American creative people. And so what I brought up in that piece I wrote is how we sometimes lose sight of the mechanics of storytelling when we focus so much on who's being represented and just sort of literally what is happening and what faces you see on the screen. And so I did feel in some ways like this movie took an Asian-American social environment and Asian-American people and shoved them into a pre-existing format. So I think there were lots of really great culturally specific details, but I don't necessarily feel that as far as romantic comedies go, it was innovating on the form.
0: Akeanu! Mm-hmm. Like but Keanu. Okay, <laughs> true. But can I say something about yeah. Keanu? Yes. Yeah. Well,
5: there there are two things about, about Always Be My baby.
1: People are wondering why we mentioned Keanu Reeves. Go ahead. Uh, so
5: mm-hmm. I love Ali Wong. I love Randall Park. And I love that they're besties in Hollywood and that they support each other. Mm-hmm. Love that, love that. However... Uh, For me, the best scenes in that film are the flashbacks to their childhood. Mm -hmm. Those are beautiful, wonderful scenes. And I wish the film had that tone throughout. You already know Keanu Reeves makes a big cameo in this film. That's when the film takes off and ignites for me. This film, I'm sorry fulfilled my deepest desires (laughs) where I could envision myself on screen with my love object, Keanu Reeves, whom I'm willing to share with everyone here in the studio. But The Keanu section was so
1: beautiful. I I
5: wanted more. In fact, could you remake the film maybe with Ali Wong and Keanu and Randall Parks can have a... We'll we'll give him another film.
1: Again, she wrote and directed it, so I think that's important. So this is this came from her. This is totally different from what you would hear in a comedy routine by her. She's totally yeah. raunchy, yes, normally. Yeah. Yes. So it's very sweet, yeah. uh, opposite I, of what she is. I, mm.
4: And something I brought up in the piece I wrote was just that. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in the movie that had actually been addressed in her earlier stand-up comedy work, and it was really interesting to watch. You know, material that had felt so incisive and so raunchy get. Filtered into the romantic comedy format. And I think it felt just a little more dull in that way. Uh, but I think she makes a lot of really interesting points about gentrification and cultural authenticity as. R- with regards to food in Baby Cobra, her uh, the Netflix special that kind of put her on the map.
0: I like the fact that she brought Keanu Reeves back in. Mm-hmm. In a way, it was a public claiming
1: mm-hmm. of
0: him as part of us, part of the Asian-American community. And the reason why that's important is because Dude is racially ambiguous to most folks. Yes, he is. And so he gets to play all sorts of different roles, and that's great. But as even Ali Wong said in an interview, he was actually flattered flattered that Ali Wong remembered him as Asian Mm. and that is a really interesting statement to make by someone who can pass as racially ambiguous when there are many other people uh, of color who would never be mistaken as white or not that race and so I found her bringing him in and really promoting him as as Asian as Asian-American, as one of our community
1: to be really interesting, too. This is going to sound weird, so just go with me for a moment. In some ways, this is a bit what Bill Cosby did on his show. Mm. So let's try to remember him before all the other stuff. Yes, But on his iconic show, Mm -hmm. he reached out and brought back all of these folks Mm. that had talents that people did not know Mm -hmm. who were Mm African-American and just worked them into the script. Mm -hmm. So that's the power of writing and producing and having a moment where people are open to perhaps some other stories in this way.
0: And to honor Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. and to paraphrase one of her quotes, she said, once you are in a position of power, you should lift other people up. And I think that we are seeing that with more racially conscious writers and creators and producers. And I'm waiting for that era, Mm -hmm. especially for Asian American movies to come up. So now
1: what do we think about bad representation or questionable representation? Is that good to have as well is that does that open up another door and by that I mean my favorite podcasters Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham um, they did a, one of their shows on do we have to like everything black <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and just confess to I don't like this and now mm-hmm. am I a bad person similar to what you were saying <laughs> Morella about trying to embrace because you, you don't feel like you have so much of the product out so you don't want to leave anything off but at the same time there's some questionable stuff out there. And one of the pieces that's questionable right now in the hands of Quentin Tarantino is a representation of Bruce Lee. Now, again, this is, this is Quentin Tarantino. This is a, <laughs> so let's keep that in mind. This is a clip from the trailer uh, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which features a controversial depiction of Bruce Lee. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. Oh. We get into a fight. I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. That was Brad Pitt uh, responding back to the quote-unquote Bruce Lee character in the film. The family's very unhappy about this. Many other people have risen up online and elsewhere to say this representation is all off for many reasons. What happens there when when this is out? I mean, this this is what you've been fighting against for so long, and then here here you have a huge what's going to be a huge blockbuster film, sort of reintroducing the the classic stereotypes.
5: When I heard about the pushback around Mike Mo's performance as Bruce Lee, and I saw what Shannon Lee and Linda Lee had to say, and how hurtful they found the representation of of their husband, their father, uh, I raced to the theater to see it. I admit, I waited 30 minutes for a broken projector to be repaired so I could watch a two-hour, 45-minute film because I was heavily invested in watching 10 minutes. (laughs) And I went into the film really ready to do combat, really ready to hate this film. And as I shared with Jenny, I love this film as a Tarantino work. I think in many ways it is his best film about the artifice and the ugliness and the beauty of filmmaking. However, that 10 minutes featuring Brad Pitt's character's interaction with Bruce Lee, very disturbing. And my bottom line is this. As an Asian-Americanist, as an Asian-American cultural critic, we work so hard for empowering representations, and we protect the legends. Don't mess with Bruce Lee. (laughs) Do not mess with him. Even Brad Pitt uh, has given interviews Mm -hmm. where he said he was really not happy with the way that, that scene was choreographed. And I think Quentin actually deleted the third round of fighting between the two characters in response to, to Brad Pitt. But it's very troubling. And again, don't mess with don't mess with a legend. <laughs> you know and Mike Moe gives a beautiful performance mm. by the way. Yeah.
0: There's a positive side about having movies that familiarize non Asian Americans with Asian American stories. But there's also, as you are implying, a negative side. So part of the familiarization process is to also show stories about Asian Americans that are still stereotyped, those movies reassure the masses mm-hmm. that we're not going too far yet. Mm-hmm. Right? This that's why I mean we are seriously in this era where we're making progress, but it's such small steps. And so I'm not surprised. The, to me, the question is who all is talking about this portrayal as problematic? Probably communities of color. Yes. But white folk ain't gonna talk about it because that's actually playing into the stereotypes already, they think that Asians are great at martial arts and that Bruce Lee must have used those skills he had in a way that would murder folk, which is obviously inaccurate. And that's why the family is upset. It's also the reason why, when we talk about the upcoming superhero movies, Mm -hmm. there is some controversy that it's going to be Shang-Chi as opposed to, say, my favorite, which would be Amadeus Cho. Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, the question is, Why are these stories that are once again tying Asian-Americans and Asians to martial arts, why are those the stories that are still being told alongside these family kind of
1: movies? Mm -hmm. How do you see them as damaging, Marilla?
4: I mean, I think this conversation is really funny because for so much of the history of Hollywood, that was just what it was. I think, Mm. I mean, there can only really be a consensus that Tarantino's approach to depicting Bruce Lee is bad because we've had such progress just in the last few years. So I think I felt less troubled and shocked by it simply because I had seen so much of that already. It just didn't feel new.
1: Didn't register with you. Did, yeah. You, you know, you've seen it, you've done it. Yeah, Nobody I mean, I saw it, 16 yeah. Candles when yes. I was really young, yes. and so
4: yes. it didn't alarm me as much as it could have. 16 mm.
0: Candles, 35 years ago. Really? really?
5: Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: Can I say that's
5: just a, one more yeah. thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? One of the biggest surprises in that film and missed opportunities, and I have yet to see a single reviewer mention this, Greatest moment in that film is watching Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate go into a movie theater to see herself in the I think it's called the Wrecking Crew, Dean Martin film, 1968. It's a scene where Sharon Tate and the great Nancy Kwan are going at it on screen, wow. fighting each other. I'm talking about the great Nancy Kwan. Wow. The world of Susie Wong, Flower Drum Song. Yes. Nancy Kwan built the house that Lucy Liu, Sandra Oh, Aquafina, Constance Wu live in. She built that house. There's no mention in the film at all that that is Nancy Kwan that we're watching, and that's Nancy Kwan at her peak, and even in the credits, but a wasted opportunity, and it could have been a beautiful counterpoint to watching Brad Pitt and Mike Moe go at it in that in that battle scene earlier, but completely invisible. No one in the theater, I think, besides myself,
1: even knew who that was. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Elena. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Berkman Klein Center's Jenny Korn, Wellesley College's Elena Creef, you just heard her, and the Boston Globe's Morella Gala. We're discussing Asian representation in film and TV, and where the progress achieved last summer with films like Crazy Rich Asians has kept the door open for stories featuring Asian Americans and Asian American actors, and writers. What are you most excited about that is coming up or is out now? I'd like to know what you all think about yesterday, for example. This guy, Himesh Patel, he sings very well, um, mm-hmm. is the lead. There's some mention of who he is as a full human being, but there's not a lot of mention about it. It's just he could be anybody else um, in this very in- kind of quirky story.
0: I think, See, I think that's interesting because even the actor himself, when he's been interviewed, he makes the same statement about the film doesn't mention the ethnicity of the character, so I got cast. Uh, to me, that's a little bit dangerous, though, no in terms of affirming colorblindness that his race doesn't somehow influence or impact the way the viewers will receive that movie. We already know that people have a conception of the race of a character, Hermione, for example. (laughs) Yes, and people get real upset when that way that they picture them is not affirmed in some other way. And so I think that when we do decide to have an Asian lead, um, again, they tend to be Asian men lead, not Asian women leads. It's saying something political, even if the actor in the movie purports that there is no political um, agenda behind it. Yeah. Does it make a difference
1: that his that the actors that portrayed him were Asian?
0: Yeah. 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 Yes. But it's a choice, right? Like there have also been other roles that were were Asian and then they got whitewashed and got played by white folk. So, again, if we are having an Asian lead, I would like there to be an acknowledgement that your race being cast in that role does have a political influence in terms of those of us who go to the movie to watch it.
1: All right, well, let's let's play a clip from Blinded by the Light. I know that's coming and a lot of people haven't seen it because that film, who, that also has an Asian male lead, is very much paying attention to the culture and the racial dynamics. Bruce, the direct line to all this true in this world. Seriously. What does he know about our world? I just
3: live in a dump like this, There's something happen-
4: you should be listening to our music before you start getting confused and hating yourself.
3: I listen to everything. Like I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt, everything I've ever wanted.
1: The young man who plays the part, of Vivek, Calra is fabulous, by the way. The line that got the most attention in these times in the theater that I saw this special screening was his saying, speaking of going to America to meet Bruce Springsteen, things are very different in America. Everybody just (laughs) just guffawed at that. I won't have this kind of stuff over there. So that was was pretty interesting and and definitely. So I think that that's one of the things that's um, really important. And by the way, Gemma Chan, speaking of... um, of people uh, playing in these comic books is set to star yes. in a new Marvel mm-hmm. movie. This is very important, I think. The Marvel movie is called The Eternals. You know what's interesting? Thinking,
5: Jenny made a, I think, astute observation that we're in the past year, we're seeing the rise of Asian American male yes. actors as Lee's in all kinds of stunning ways. And maybe starring John Cho started this, and we'll give him credit. <laughs> and he's had a great year. But maybe one of the places the women are going, they're moving into the roles of director and writer because The Eternals being directed by Chloe Zhao. And I know Chloe Zhao because I have been fangirling her (laughs) on the independent film circuit. She has made the best films ever made shot in Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota, Songs That My Brother Taught Me, mm-hmm. and then The Writer. Both those films, she wrote them. She filmed them on a shoestring budget, probably with a lot of credit cards, and they are exquisite. They are mm. perfect narratives for storytelling. She wrote them, she directed them, and they garnered every major award on the on the film festival circuit. And she was then tapped on the strength of both songs and the writer, to direct uh, this new Marvel film. Wow. But she is amazing. And then there's another Asian woman director, uh, Kathy Yan. Mm -hmm. So, like, right now we're seeing this moment where brilliant, talented Asian American women are being tapped to do big-budget feature films, action films, Marvel
0: films. Mm. This has never happened before. I have uh, one show I was going to uh, share mm-hmm. about that does have uh, an Asian girl lead. It's a cartoon. Yes. Um, and it's called Amphibia. And it is the first Disney cartoon about a what? Thai girl, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> that's right, my parents are great from Thailand. And I was excited about it because when the cartoon came out, she was shown uh, in a Y, which is when you put your palms together, looks similar to namaste, and you bow your head, and that's how you greet folk in thailand i will say because i'm here to critique as well it goes back to the whole familiarizing mm. era that we're in so she was which is great you know that's distinctly thai and then like i watched all these episodes looking for more thai stuff and i was like when is it going to happen so episode nine <clears throat> yeah. um yeah she makes pad thai okay <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, yeah, and so i do wish i, I again i mean even that cartoons the current of how they're showing different sides of what it is to have uh, be Thai culturally, it's slow, right? I am happy that there's a Thai rider behind Amphibia, yes. and it's also being voiced by a Thai woman. Mm. So that's pretty cool for representation. That is. Yeah. Yeah. I also think,
4: uh, just to continue on the thread of what it means to familiarize a general audience with Asian-American stories, I also think it's really interesting, I think one of you brought up earlier that these big blockbuster movies like The Farewell and Crazy Rich Asians really are about family and I think family is sort of a very palatable lens through which to understand Mm. these Asian American stories Mm -hmm. and so I think it'll be really interesting once we start seeing movies that are less I mean I think there are reasons why family makes culture legible it's because you see you know the older generations who impart certain cultural values on younger ones and it's a very clear articulation of generational struggles and diasporic struggles but I think it'll be really interesting to hopefully see more more movies and TV shows that explore what it means to live as an Asian American outside the context of family.
1: I think that's an excellent point. So I want 30 seconds from each of you about what you are looking forward to for hashtag Asian August next year.
5: I can't wait for Crazy Rich Asians sequel number two and three, which are already on the books and will start in production 2020. And I'm also thinking, how about this? As much as I love Idris Elba, what about Henry Golding as the
1: next James Bond? Mm, It could be. That's my guess, Elena Kreef. Okay, Uh, Jenny Korn.
0: So, um, again, I do think change is incremental. Mm -hmm. um, But to be aspirational about reuniting in a year, because I hope we do this annually. (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm with it. I would love to see movies moving away from familiarizing and reassuring folk to being intentionally more politicized. Mm -hmm. I would like there to be movies that are unabashedly about Asian American pride that don't necessarily explain why cultural things are the way they are. Like, just, you can watch it and you can go do some research about it later. Keep it moving. I would love there to be stories that are uniquely Asian American and political. Here, I'm thinking about there are many documentaries on this woman, but perhaps a mainstream commercial movie about Yuri Kochiyama Mm. because she is an Asian-American activist that became activist because of the Japanese internment camps. And that's uniquely American. And she uh, also uh, was part of the Black Liberation Movement I would love there to be a movie that would be mainstream enough to inform and educate non-Asian-American communities that this, this is Asian-American too. There are family f- stories, there are comedy stories, and there is social justice activism, particularly to fight against the prevalent stereotype out there that Asian-Americans are apolitical. Mm. So whoever listening out there, <laughs> again, if you have that kind of commercial success already from which you can build, please make a movie about an Asian-American social justice activist within a year so we can talk about next year.
1: Okay. (laughs) All right. Morella.
4: I mean, I think it's interesting that a lot of the movies that have been labeled, you know, Asian August movies are movies that almost exclusively feature... Asian people. And I think there's also room for a lot of room for representations of the way that Asian communities interact with other communities of color. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for example, with Aquafina, I think that's really important because she was criticized for sort of putting on this black accent. Mm -hmm. uh, And she she said that it was just influenced by the people who were around her when she was growing up. And I think sort of interracial interactions are really important, are really important part of the Asian-American story as well, especially if they made a movie about West Coast Asians and talked about how proximity to Latino communities changes that kind of culture. I would really like to see that. I will say one thing I don't want to see again is a movie or TV show about Asian men lusting after white women and being really, you know, torn up about that. I think... I think. I'm personally good on that and I think (laughs) so I think I would be okay if we didn't make more movies about that
1: I think you'd be joined in the room by some black women but I'm not going to say anything (laughs) talking about all this stuff All right. well that's for another conversation Uh, but I thank you all for joining me for this conversation Thank you. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Elena Creef is a professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian-American visual history and photography, film, and popular culture. Jenny Korn is a fellow and the founding coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. And Mirella Gala is a reporting intern for the Boston Globe. She also has bylines with Vice, Curbed, and The Marshall Project. Coming up, the ultimate coffee rivalry has always been iced versus cold brew. But now a new challenger appears. Snap-chill coffee is the latest caffeine craze. Also, why reds from Croatia are the next big thing in the wine world. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep that's Creole for something extra. Croatia is one of the hottest vacation spots in the world, and so is its signature red wine. Speaking of hot, This summer, France's hottest day ever topped out at 113 degrees. And now the heat is on in Bordeaux country, where winemakers are, gasp, beginning to grow warm climate grapes. Plus, donut lovers in Rhode Island and Martha's Vineyard can now satisfy late-night carb cravings at two fresh donut windows. And the summer coffee face-off, iced coffee versus cold brew. Joining me in the studio, Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook. Hello, Amy. Hello, Callie. And also with me, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Well, I'm happy to have both of you because it's a great time to eat and drink, as always, when the two of you are here. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with this red wine from Croatia. Jonathan, It's hot, hot, hot. Why?
3: Well, so one (laughs) of the things that every wine lover is always looking for is um, new grape, new wine region, new style, something new to discover. So what I brought here, a white wine from Croatia and a red wine from Croatia. Croatia is part of the former Yugoslavia. A lot of people think of Croatia as uh, a little part of Italy Mm. uh, that somehow got away. Mm-hmm. Um the people are very ethnically Italian, the people are overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. A lot of them speak Italian and it's become the new Portugal. It's where all the young beautiful people are going for vacation.
1: Wow, so yeah. a lot of good wine drinking there. A
3: lot of good wine, a lot of long mm-hmm. history of winemaking, but you know as part of Yugoslavia for the last half of the 20th century was on You know, it's politically on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. And even though they have a long, long history of winemaking, it's just something that we've not really been part of. But now we're starting to see them come into our market. The white wine, this is Croatia's signature white grape. And this is a grape called Poship. 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 And it's spelled P-O-S-I-P. So I always remember it you know pause and sip
1: okay right pause sip yeah. oh.
3: pretty light pretty mm-hmm. zippy it's really quite good. Love it uh, very good with seafood this part of the balkan peninsula right on the coast a lot of seafood um, in the cuisine and then this red wine is croatia's signature red grape and this is a grape called plavich mali Mm. We got some geography to learn. We got some new grape names to That's learn. You know, Boston Wine School, we're all about teaching, so we love this, but it is a, a real challenge to really get to know these new places and grapes. And this uh, Plavich Are they expensive? These are a little bit higher end and are coming into the market. The Poship posh is maybe 18, mm-hmm. and then this Plavich Mali is high 20s. Okay. And Plavich Mali, one of its genetic parents is Zinfandel. So uh, a lot of people find it really familiar. I the, love Zen, so the, this is, maybe that's why I really like it. I had a it. feeling you were going to go for <laughs> yes, this. Yes, I really
1: love it. I like both of them very much. Over to you, Amy. Speaking of drinks, I have to say and I know coffee lovers will just scream now with this, I can't tell the difference between iced coffee and cold brew. I'm well, sorry. <laughs> if you can't tell the difference between those two, this
2: next bit of news is going to be more interesting to you. So there's a new cold form of coffee called Snapchill Coffee. This is a company based out of Watertown that actually was started by an MIT grad who was working on technology there. And it's it's a system for quick chilling hot beverages. In 60 seconds, you can go from hot coffee. So the theory here, and this is what they argue, cold brew is not a great way to extract all the flavor from a coffee bean. It's its just a weak way to get that flavor out if it's just sitting there in cold water. Meanwhile, adding ice to hot coffee just dilutes it and it just makes it weaker. So if you take hot coffee and can chill it really quickly and then can it, which is how they deliver it, you get all the intense flavors of perfectly brewed coffee. And these are really serious coffee nerds at Snapchill. So you get all the flavor, but you get a nice cold drink that you can enjoy in the summer. It's a relatively new company. They sell both the technology for quick chilling beverages, but also the coffee. It's sold in pop-ups right now, but you can also order it online It'll be delivered to your house. It's fairly pricey, but not really more than a good cup of cold brew at your local cafe. Ends up being about five bucks a can. So it's a six pack for $29.95. But if you're a real coffee connoisseur Mm. and you want to know the absolute prime way of delivering cold coffee, this would definitely be worth checking out. And it comes in several varieties that have very interesting kind of floral profiles, netty profiles. They'll give you all the information on what your flavor profile is. And where do you find it? Where would I find it? So it's Snapchill coffee, uh, Snapchill.com. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow. It sounds interesting because I'm sorry, I can't tell. All of my coffee uh, fanatical friends would just love this, though. Yeah. I'm so sure. It would I be cool even to set up it. a tasting yeah, yeah. of, like, yes. cold
2: brew next to the Snapchill and yes. see. Yeah. They do do pop-ups. They recently did one at Faneuil Hall. So you'll find them around the Boston area, too, oh. if you want to go taste.
1: Oh, that's good. Um, well, what goes with coffee, cold or hot? With donuts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what goes with everything? <laughs> Tomato juice.
1: <laughs> um, and so uh, there's a tradition around these parts of these backdoor, late night right. grabbing of the donuts, which is the worst time to be eating them. But what oh, can I but say? the best at the yes. same time. Yeah. So
2: many people who've ever been to Martha's Vineyard know about backdoor donuts. It really did. I remember when it really was this little secret thing where you would show up and there were maybe three people waiting behind this bakery in Oak Bluffs and they'd open the door and they'd hand you a bag of hot donuts. It became such a phenomenon now that they have people who Cordoned off into these lines that snake around the parking lot, and there's police there to make sure people don't get crazy. You can't, you can't get in the club. Yes. Yes. But basically, those bakers get up really early
1: to make the donuts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And
2: so if you can get to them when they're actually making them, you're getting super, super fresh. And if you've ever had a apple fritter from Backdoor Donuts, it it's really is really a magical good. thing when it's hot. Yeah. So a bakery called Night Donuts in Providence is getting in on the action, and every Friday between six and nine, they have a hot donut window downtown where there's Serving. they call it the night crawler, and uh, yeah. <laughs> which is very cute. That's cute. And they nice. have flavors like strawberry shortcake, brown butter pecan. Like mm. really, donuts in Providence are really, really good. There's also PVD donuts. They're incredible. The line goes. I waited in line for about 40 minutes on a Saturday morning in the winter to get those donuts, oh. and they're phenomenal. So great donut town in Providence, and now you can get them at night.
1: Well, my friend Bob just moved there, so I'll be in that line. <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> yes. Over to you, Jonathan. Yes. Warm. From climate <clears throat> Bordeaux. Oh man, that uh, this scary. is this is a tectonic plate shift.
3: <laughs> uh, you know the effect of climate change and the way that we're feeling it in the wine world. In the words of the immortal Van Morrison, it's really, 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 really real. <laughs> I mean, harvest. I mean, this is towards the end of August now, harvest started around the world a month ago. Mm. It's not even remarkable anymore. But we're seeing and such... And used to
1: be October, just so people yeah, can have to, a... You know, mm. even
3: in the hottest, even in California, late August, early September, you know, now it's July. But one of the things that we're seeing, which, as you said, if you felt the earth move, that's what you were feeling. The most traditional wine region, Bordeaux, in a super-traditional wine culture, France, has approved seven new grapes to be part of the official Bordeaux blend that are completely new grapes that have never been grown in Bordeaux before. Two of them are from Portugal. Mm. right where people go for vacation Yes okay so to, so two of them are hot climate grapes from Portugal. One of them is a is a white hot climate grape from Spain and Portugal. You know, these won't be planted till 2020 at the earliest. We won't see the first wine you know until 2027. So this I mean this is a very long game, but the fact is these really, traditional, fundamentalist winemakers are looking at the weather and looking at the climate and looking at the reality around them and saying, you know, yes, there'll still be Merlot, yes, there'll still be Cabernet, yes, there'll still be a lot of the traditional grapes, but it's not going to be possible to be a successful winemaker in the future with just those grapes. This is a sign that these winemakers are saying we need these other grapes wow. in order to be successful. And when Bordeaux initiates this sort of change, it really it really gets your attention.
1: Yes, it does. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Under the Radar food and wine contributors Amy Traverso and Jonathan Alsop. We're discussing the last summer culinary sensations you need to know about. And maybe beyond summer. Uh, Amy, I'm really interested in the combination of the family dinner and the what's good. And yeah. I should say, uh, even before you speak, we are doing a whole segment with the what's good people oh, good. at the end of the month. So I'm people so should look forward to that. Yes.
2: So, yeah, these people are really <laughs> worth hearing from. Okay, so... We are now entering the prime harvest season of New England. Mid to late August through September are the best times to be eating in New England. Everything's coming in, the tomatoes, the stone fruits, the greens, everything. It's amazing. What better way to celebrate that than to be eating local produce? But we all know that while CSAs are a wonderful thing and we all aspire to subscribe, They're fairly inconvenient. You know, you've got to go pick up your veggies every week, and you don't always feel like you can do that. I've gotten emails, anybody want to pick up my CSA, I can't get there. So two organizations have come about. They're different organization. There's What's Good, which is Rhode Island-based. Their model is basically Peapod crossed with CSA. So there is an online platform. You can go, you can see what's available, what's good, and order it on a single platform from multiple farms. And then either pick it up at a drop-off site or have it delivered. That's a new system that they're bringing on. So all the convenience of going on Instacart or Peapod, ordering your groceries, but you're getting it from local sources. Then there's Family Dinner, which I actually subscribe to, and I've really enjoyed it. And that's more of a CSA meets Blue Apron system, Mm. where it's not that you're getting exactly meal kits, but you're getting all the ingredients you would need to be able to cook dinner through the week from local sources. And you can customize it. So if you're Mm. omnivore, if you're paleo, if you're vegan, you can order for one or for a family-sized portion. You'll get fish, meat if you eat meat, veggies, some fruit, local fruit. There's usually some treats in there, like cookies or bread Mm -hmm. or something yummy. There's local yogurt, eggs, butter. I mean, it's really, really high-quality stuff. I love that with this service. I'm just a fan. I'm not a sponsor. But what I like is that there's always something in my fridge now for me to cook without me having to go to the supermarket. Mm. And I'm supporting local farms. So both of these businesses are so smart. They're really finding that spot between consumer, what they need and what they want or what they aspire to. And farmers are hopefully benefiting from that
1: too. Farmers are definitely benefiting. And so please check into Under the Radar at the end of the month to hear the uh, full discussion about what's good and talk. And you'll learn about how uh, this really is beneficial to farmers. It's a win win. It's really very interesting concept. Jonathan, canned wine. Yes. I told you this canned <laughs> wine is gonna the be <laughs> it was gonna be a big deal. It's mainstream, baby. You Trader Joe's, I think. Kicked it off. What you, do you know,
3: think? it's um, <laughs> it's absolutely wild. I mean, in in terms of the entire wine market, canned wine represents slightly less than one percent of the whole market. So, in reality, it's a very new, very small segment. Uh, we love it for what it represents. When these delivery systems, the way we transport wine, the way we serve wine, the way we share wine with each other, when these things change, these are the physical manifestations of how people's ideas about wine are changing. I mean, 10, 20, 30 years ago, wine in a can was utterly unthinkable. Today... It wasn't thinkable. It didn't exist. You know know, (laughs) throwback Thursday. Yes, yes. Well, these days, cans are thought of as, you know, throwback technology. They're like the tube amp and the turntable (laughs) of alcohol delivery systems. You know, they're simultaneously very modern. No one's ever really done wine in a can before. But they're also very traditional because we're going back to this long history that we have of You know, beer in cans and and, and all kinds of food, all sorts of specialty foods. And it's not to say you
1: can't get cheap wine in cans, but the wine that I've had in cans is very good.
3: One, we're living Mm -hmm, in a golden age of cheap wine Mm -hmm. right now. So we got a lot of super affordable wine at the price point that people are eager to pay for. But you know, Chateau Saint Michel, they have a line of wines called 14 Hands. Yes. Which is from Horse Heaven Hills, which is one of the most exciting new parts of Washington state. So they're canning up quite good wine. (laughs) People are starting to do this on purpose. I mean, Archer Roos, their main marketing and advertising focus is you want to save the planet? Will you drink wine in oh, a can yeah. to save the planet? The the carbon footprint is much smaller. The the shipping, the recyclability, you can fit all it in a beach all bag, all a of So many so yeah. many advantages. Right. But you yeah. know they're coming from a. You want to save the planet? Here's how you do it. I'm not mad at them
2: for that. I think Americans are dr- obviously drinking more and more wine, and they do see it as more of an everyday beverage. But this really takes that over the line into everyday accessibility in a way that I think hasn't quite hit yet. Mm. So when you just open up a can, you don't have to enact any rituals of the you know, that's graceful right. removal of the cork <laughs> and the flourish
1: <laughs> as you pour. I yeah, mean, you don't have to do right. anything. Just crack open the can and, and just, enjoy and it. And just
3: pass it back and right. forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just you're, like you're, you popped you know, open got your that. fridge
1: and got your stuff out from you know what's yeah. good, and then yeah. you I mean, open it up feels the can. Super, it
3: feels super familiar. <laughs> yeah, you know? it does. And, um, and comfortable. Yeah. So. Yeah. And not
1: off putting. it. It's a good way for people, real seriously, right. To you know right. f- find themselves right. access to enjoying wine in a way that I think they'll they'll find a and, very and, quite comfortable and open
3: in the door for young people that's who right. who that's say right. look, yeah. bag, box, whatever, can, what what if it's good wine, it's good wine, right? And that's just feeding this idea which we love in every way.
1: Every way. Something else we love in every way. <laughs> British desserts. We do now, but did we, you no, know? No, we didn't before we the show. kind of forgot
2: about them, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, but we love Mary Berry and we love the even without her we love the Great That's British Bake Off. <laughs> yeah, British desserts have really come back in vogue, thanks I think in large part to the Great British Bake Off and also to uh probably The pound having gone down in value, a little more travel over the year. I was in London earlier this summer, and I swear every other accent I heard was American. There were so many Americans in London. So everybody's coming back with a taste. So I'm seeing these desserts. In fact, I was in Maine this week, and I saw lamingtons, which are kind of a sponge Mm -hmm. cake Based dessert uh, up at a bakery in Rockland, Maine, a very good bakery, Atlantic Baking Company. In Boston, there's the Cornish Pasty Company um, mm-hmm. right in uh, Back Bay. They're doing everything from pasties, which are the savory pies to you know sweet desserts, sticky toffee pudding, banoffee pie. Uh, FOMU is a vegan ice cream place, but you'd never know it's vegan. It's very, very good ice cream, and they're they're sold in stores. You and never know. Also, it's,
3: it's that good. It's you'd that good. <laughs>
2: Anybody <laughs> would like it. Yes. <laughs> they make a banoffee pie flavored, a honeycomb creamery does, um, sticky toffee puddings made at flour. And there's actually a pop-up bakery in Brookline called the Great British Bakery. Well, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. They do events more. They don't have a regular storefront. But look for these desserts. The trend is huge right now in New York City. A lot of pastry chefs are turning out British desserts. Variations on Eat and Mess, which is a mixture of Mm, meringue and cream and uh, trifles, Fools, Mm. which is really just whipped cream and fresh fruit, which is delicious. So you'll be seeing a lot of that, I think, especially as we start to get into fall and have some of that cooler weather and want cozy desserts. A lot of British. Hmm. Well,
1: I will say, two years ago, maybe even three, I don't know when I started watching that show, you would not have gotten me going into is it Tate? Yes. And also at the Boston Public Library our wonderful cafe there, the Newsfeed Cafe. They both, well, Tate makes it regularly, and the Newsfeed makes it every now and then. Queen Amon. Oh, love and that. I never even heard of it before so the <laughs> before the British show. Yeah, and now I went in and I was like, "Oh my God, Queen of One!" <laughs> and you have to have the lamination on each layer. Mm-hmm. Butter must be cold; okay. has to be thinly spread. I know how to do it. <laughs> I wouldn't do it, but <laughs> right. I would eat it. Now you know. Now that you is know. One of the best laminated. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It goes right. To your behind. So moving on, (laughs) (laughs) um, I want to ask you about Chili Crisp, Ah. this new Chinese condiment that's all the rage. Amy, have you uh, had a chance to taste it? It (laughs) is so good.
2: It is truly addictive. And, you know, we're in this era of, you know, lots of spice but also mixing salty and sweet. Chili Crisp, if you haven't had it, it's sort of an oily chili-based condiment that's hugely popular in China. In fact, the woman who invented it, I apologize for my pronunciation, but Dao Wavi, did I say that? She is a billionaire (laughs) having brought this to market. She is a self-made billionaire. It's a mixture of chili peppers that are crushed, Uh, star anise, black pepper, MSG, which gives it that umami flavor. And a lot of the fears about MSG being bad for you have been debunked, so don't be afraid of that. Sichuan peppercorn, sugar, ginger, cardamom, I mean, just a lot of flavors that are fried until they're crisp and crunchy and put in a jar. And you can get this at Super 88. It's Delicious. You can ask where the chili crisp is. They'll have a lot of it because it's so popular. But people, going back to the sweet and salty thing, people are spooning this over soft-serve ice cream. Oh, my God. They're yeah. serving it. You could do, like, a salad with cucumber and yogurt that. and spoon yeah. this over that. You could certainly do it over stews and anything savory, over pizza. I mean, it is the all-purpose condiment. It is the sriracha of this year. Yes, it is. Yeah.
1: And I think forever and ever. You have two seconds, uh, Jonathan, to tell us about Troquet having some some great wines for people to sample through the end of this month.
3: Well, first of all, I cannot (laughs) believe that Troquet, after all these years, is still under-the-radar material, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is. It's a restaurant called Troquet. It's on South Street. It's near South Station. It's exactly like Croquet, but with a T. It's a restaurant where the wine comes first. The food is awesome, but the focus is always on the wine. And every year, the month of July and August, the owner, Chris Campbell, he has a huge sale, and he essentially blows out his cellar things that he has ones and twos of, things that are hard to sell, things that are uncollectible. It's in the back, so you have to kind of ask to see mm-hmm. the summer wine sale. If you're a wine lover, you want to try out Boston's best wine restaurant, uh, this is the time of year to do it because you got wines on the wine list, 25 30 $40. This is great. Um, just, yeah. just a really wow. exciting, really yeah. exciting stuff. So Troquet South Street near South Station. the wine lover's
2: version of
1: Alston Christmas. <laughs> yes, that's right. There yes, yes, it is. There you go. <laughs> and we appreciate it. And I appreciate both of you. Uh, so thank you so yeah. much thank for joining you. me. Thank I'll see you. you back here when we're talking about fall. Not ready. Yeah, I'm la, not la, ready la, either. La, <laughs> me either. I don't want to hear it. Amy Traverso is food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee and author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook. Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley. And like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.